You're listening to the Faith Unpacked Podcast. Welcome back to the Faith Unpacked Podcast with Jamie and Jason. This is episode 237, and today I'm going to be recording this one by myself. Jamie uh, is not going to be with me in this episode, but I'm going to be talking a little bit about the archaeological evidence for Christmas. Um, As Christians, we recognize that our faith is always going to be under attack on some level, uh, there's going to be people who oppose Christianity from various angles, and we want to be able to tell people uh, that despite what skeptics say, there's actually good, solid, historical, archaeological, factual evidence for the birth of Jesus Christ, the fact that he was born of the Virgin Mary, the fact that he was born in Bethlehem, and that he fulfilled messianic prophecy. All of that, I want to be able to talk about that and and share just some of the things that might be really helpful for those of you who have heard that this is something that has been attacked by skeptics and um, there's been various people, even, it's somewhat shocking, but even today we have people not just attacking things like the virgin birth, but, or that Jesus is the son of God, but even more extreme is the view that Jesus is a legend, that Jesus is just a myth, that he was sort of concocted by the Christian community from the beginning, and that he didn't really exist. We've talked about that subject before in previous episodes, but uh, I think it's just good to reiterate, there is just a, a an abundance of historical references to Jesus, actually over a dozen references to Jesus outside of scripture. But even if we were to just treat scripture as the historical documents that they are, when we look at what we find in the New Testament, for example, uh, that can't be discounted too, just because it's uh, Christians would recognize it as divine revelation that in no way makes it less of a historical source for the, the real Jesus. And so you know, when you look at all the evidence, there's just so many references to Jesus of Nazareth being a real historical person. And it, it's really, it's it's to the point that even skeptics, um, even Bart Ehrman, who's known for being more of a skeptical scholar when it comes to things like the virgin birth, the miracle stories of the gospels, or the fact that Jesus is God in human flesh, even though he would say there's legendary accretions that have been added to the original history of of Jesus, even he would admit that it is just outlandish, absurd, and frankly, he even uses the word foolish uh, to deny the historical reality of Jesus. And that he, you know, to claim something along the lines of him being a myth is just not at all in touch with uh, the most basic scholarship on the subject. But I think because there's so much skepticism, that's like, very much in vogue today. It's good for us to look at the evidence because people, by and large, if you if you ex, if you ask them if they've even considered the evidence, very often they will say no. Which, of course, that's the starting point. Is well, if you're making the claim that you believe Jesus is not 
uh, historical or you believe that the virgin birth has no evidence for it or the fact that he's born in Bethlehem, all these things, you should probably have something supporting that. And if, and if we as Christians can say, no, we have looked into the evidence or we've, we've investigated, uh, to a, to a certain degree, the evidence, and we have found there's plenty of support for Jesus being everything Christians claim him to be. Uh, because first and foremost, he himself claimed to be the son of God, the savior and the Messiah. So, um, I think for starters, it's good to, to look at some of the archeological evidence we find. Um, some of the stuff has even been recently found in, uh, the Middle East. I think one thing that we could begin with, one, one thing we could begin with is the consistency with how Jesus is presented and how it matches up with what we find in the Gospels. So, for instance, in the Gospel of Luke, we are told that Gabriel visited Mary while she was living in Nazareth and announced to her that she would be the mother of the Savior, the Son of God. Now, the interesting thing about it is there's no conflicting perspectives out there as far as who was Jesus's mother. The Christian sources universally attest to that this is this is Mary. Mary was the mother. The non-Christian sources universally attest to this as well, including even those who were uh, wanting to mock Christianity in its earliest days. They, they also admitted that Mary, in fact, is the mother of Jesus what they disputed was whether or not she was a virgin, of course, because uh, they would want to deny the miraculous, just like skeptics today would deny the miraculous. Um, but what we find is there's plenty of evidence consistent throughout all the sources that Jesus came from the womb of Mary and that Mary lived in Nazareth. In fact, at the location where it's believed that Mary was living, uh, there was a church built on top of the archaeological archaeological ruins there, and it's now called the Church of the Annunciation there in Nazareth. And what you'll find is even at the base of the column, uh, carved into the, the column in the Greek, is the name Mary. So that, that links it to the, at least say that the tradition that Mary lived there has, has gone back quite a ways, because this is even in the 300s. This is a long time ago, uh, but it was within... We're talking within 250 to 300 years of the time when this would have happened with Mary. And then um, you also have evidence that uh, people believed that she was married to a carpenter. There's more than one reference to that as well. Of course, at the time of her being announced as pregnant and carrying the Lord, uh, she was not yet uh, formally married. In fact, it's interesting how it refers to Joseph uh, being betrothed to Mary, but then it says that he had made up his mind in Matthew 1 that he would divorce her uh, quietly so as not to put her to shame. Now, that it's important to know that betrothal was very typical in the first century. It was a very typical thing, and, and it would be a little bit like a, a binding contract uh, not as much like our in our day in, in, in the United States, we have engagement and and this is after someone has proposed and that's the typical arrangement. Then you get married after that engagement period. With this, it would be more binding when you get 
betrothed, it's thought of as as you are husband and wife, even though you haven't yet consummated that marriage because the wedding feast has not yet happened. And so there, there was a sense in which you would have to go through the legal process of divorce, even though you're not, you haven't officially consummated that marriage. And that's what the, was happening with uh, Mary and Joseph at this time. They, she was still a virgin for that reason. And that's just something that, you know, history supports. The, the historical sources of this time support that that was the common arrangement for couples who were going to get married. Uh, and, you know, when we think of Mary and Joseph, we sometimes wonder how old were they? And, and our best guess, historians tell us, based on the records we have, is that uh, women in first century Israel would typically get married between the ages of 12 and 20, somewhere in there. And typically it'd be later teens. So, you know, when, when people say, well, she was just a 12-year-old girl, we don't actually know how old Mary was. She could have been 18. She could have been 25 for all we know. Probably not 25, but more likely she was in her teens, uh, probably in her late teens. And that's just based on the best evidence we have from uh, different Judy, different uh, writings, different pieces of literature from early Judaism and what the practices were at that time. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, we read about this census taking place, and and what it we're told is that it happened during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Everyone was required to go and be registered in their hometown, and that the governor of Syria at the time was Quirinius. So this is an area where a lot of you know skeptics used to say this doesn't sound right you know requiring everyone to go back to their hometown that sounds a bit outlandish it sounds uh, a little bit far-fetched that people would have to go all the way back to their hometown just to register for a census but the reality is we've got records of these censuses taking place uh, there's there was more than one this wasn't the only one of course uh, during the Roman Empire. But the typical practice is that you would have to go back to your ancestral home or, or the wherever your ancestral line uh, originated. That's where you would go back to register. And so that's why Joseph had to go to Bethlehem. And that's not just a concoction of the gospel writers. That's, that's true to history that that's what you had to do. But when it comes to the dating of the census, this is where some Christians have done some great work on this because the question mark is, okay, so in our dating scheme, you know, the year is 2023 and, and you ask, okay, 2023 years from what? Well, typically people will say, well, that's from the time Jesus was born. And that's because, uh, there was a, a, a dating uh, system that was established and just, it just within, I think it was within, uh, 300 years or so after Jesus was born, um, that, you know, there was some research done and they, they did their best to, uh, guesstimate when Jesus was, but what they didn't have access to, uh, those folks who did that dating method is they didn't have access to Josephus and Josephus helps clarify some of the, the dates that uh, were based on some of the reigns of the uh, Hasmonean kings and the dynasty and the how that aligned with the Roman Empire and who was the Caesar at the time. And so what we've gleaned from that since then is that Jesus was in all 
likelihood not born at, at the year zero, but actually a bit before that. And that's where people have guesstimated somewhere between 4 and 6 BC. And that's what what scholars typically will agree on is is that Jesus was probably born closer even to the <coughs> excuse me the 6 BC and that is where the the question mark comes because if the census that's talked about in Luke chapter 2 happened in 8 BC and what we know is that there was basically around this time the closest uh, full-scale census of the entire Roman Empire, the closest one would have to be 8 BC. That's that's what we uh, can gather from the historical records. And this creates a little bit of a problem. If Jesus was born in 6 BC, then, then how can we, what, what happened to these two years, basically, is the question. Well, uh, Titus Kennedy, in his book, the archaeology and history of Christ and the Gospels, uh, he does a great job of showing how there's records of folks who did not get included or their their region, their territory where they lived, didn't get um, registered for the census until more than a year after the census was issued. And so that tells us that even though the, the census was issued in 8 B.C., what probably happened is, and this would make sense, is uh, they would first uh, start with those closest to Rome, so those within uh, the Italian peninsula and and then beyond that, and eventually you would get to the farthest out regions of the empire, which is where Israel comes in. And so it, it actually it makes sense that Israel would be registering for this census um, up to a year and a half or two years after that census was first issued because of the the time you know we, we we have things like the internet and everything's so sped up and we can just click and go on so many things that it's hard for us to recognize that things like this took a lot longer back then and the reality is if you wanted to do a census of the entire empire and you're counting every head of household, across your your entire empire, this is going to be a long, drawn-out process. But in the minds of Caesar and the Roman officials, it's worth it because you get to tax them and, and you get to make more money off these people. That's you know, that's that's a, one of the things that government has done throughout history is they've taxed their people. And so you, you have to do the census to be able to make sure you've taxed everybody. And so that's why they would go through this long process, and that's why it was worth it to them. The other date mark we, we know is that Herod the Great would have been the uh, Hasmonean king in Israel during the time of the census. And that's because in Matthew 2, we're told that when the Magi came from the east, they inquired in Jerusalem, where is he to be born, uh, who's, who's born king of the Jews? And of course, Herod's thinking, I'm the king of the Jews. He didn't like that. He was bothered by it. But he, he did uh, tell them, based on the prophecy of Micah that the scribes informed him about, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And so they, they travel to Bethlehem to find Jesus. And, uh, and this is something that's interesting is, so we know from historical records that Herod the Great, so that would have been this Herod, the Herod that talked to the Magi, he died in 4 BC. But we also know that 
he was still alive sometime within two years of Jesus's birth. Because when he issues the, uh, well, actually, when the Magi don't return to Jerusalem, he uh, he issues a a a decree to go out and, and wipe out all the male babies in Bethlehem two years and younger. And so this is, this tells us at least that, that he was within two years, somewhere in there of Jesus being born, he was still on the throne. Now, if he died in four BC, then that means that Jesus would have to have been born before four BC. And so again, the six BC marker kind of makes sense because that would fit with the census with Joseph and Mary traveling down south at the tail end of the census time after almost two years uh, since the census had been issued from Rome. And that fits because then Herod's still alive and it uh, makes sense of our later dating records where we're we're told in, uh, in Luke that when Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years old. And so if that was sometime between uh, 25 and 30 AD, then we, we, it's a fit. And we can say, yeah, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. That lines up for his birth being in 6 BC, lines up for being during the census that Augustus, Caesar Augustus sent out and during the time uh, that we have for Herod the Great's reign and when he was alive. So all that being said, this is just to show that this is all supported by history outside of Scripture. And it, it's, it's not as though the, what the gospel writers were talking about is out of left field and doesn't fit the facts, because it certainly does. But let me just comment real quick on Quirinius, because this is where a lot of skeptics have basically launched their attack and said, hey, Quirinius is in our records. We have him down as governor, and he certainly was governor of Syria. But in our records, it doesn't look like he would have been governor during the time of the census. He was governor after that. And so, and and there's even um, records showing that Saturninus was called the 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 governor of um, of the region that would have been registering the people of Israel, uh, so the the area of Syria, and and so that's that's where a lot of Christian archaeologists have done great work because what they found is that there's there's a couple things. First, there's there's something called the Quirinius census inscription or the Lapis Venetus, and what this inscription says is that. Quirinius was the called it's called the legate I think is how you say it of of the Syria province in AD 6 so this this is when he was there but he was in a position as a military commander now Luke uses a word that could be translated governor or it could also be the idea of the the, the person overseeing or with the authoritative position of, of uh, administering the census. And what we find is, according to these, these records, the, the census in these larger regions was overseen by a military commander, not the civil governor, as it were, not like the, uh, the procurator, like what you have with Pontius Pilate. He was the governor of that region during the time of Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. 
And Quirinius didn't have that role. So, so that's true that that was a guy named Saturninus at the time. But Quirinius was the military commander and he actually would have functioned as the one in authority overseeing this census. And so it all makes sense. Why did Luke mention Quirinius and not Saturninus? Well, he didn't get his names wrong. He was emphasizing Quirinius because he had the jurisdiction, the authoritative role, the governing role, even if he wasn't exactly a governor as we typically think, um, because uh, uh, he, he had that role over the census. And so, again, when you just do a little investigation, when you recognize this, there's other explanations and we don't want to uh, fault the Bible as being inauthentic or inaccurate until we've seen all the facts. Because when you do see all the facts, you see everything come into play. Uh, time and time again, scripture proves to be authentic and accurate in every way. And and this is just one clear example because skeptics used to bring up Quirinius and Saturninus and say, this doesn't match up. Uh, but but the, the more we've dug, in, dug into this, the more we've uh, done archaeological work and, and studied this out, we see that it makes sense for Luke to identify Quirinius as the authoritative position because of being that military commander. And then uh, I think lastly, just to touch on this, because this is a a central place in uh, when it comes to Christian sites that Constantine kind of helped venerate. He had churches built at these various sites in the Holy Land. And one of those was the Church of the Nativity, which is built basically right above what has been historically and traditionally thought to be the place of Jesus's birth, which contrary to what a lot of people have pictured as being a stable, more likely it probably was, and this, we don't want to say this with a dogmatic tone, but probably it was a cave. And there's good reason for saying that. So first of all, this is the traditional site this is where the church was built way back in the 300s. So they were closer to the time of Jesus's birth. And there's nothing that actually says that Jesus was born in a stable. Um, and, and some people might say, well, why does it matter? The only reason it would matter is there's good support for an actual location being identified. And that just says that there's, there's a historical basis for all of this. It's not just out of thin air as if there's, you know, no place for a manger or no place for uh, keeping livestock or anything like that in ancient Bethlehem. There was. And this cave seems to be identified very early on by a lot of our records. In fact, a lot of the church fathers in the uh, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century, when they referred to the birth of Jesus, they commonly talked about this, uh, this cave as the place where Jesus was born. And so not your typical... Uh, stable as you might think of uh, for the nativity scene. And, and maybe that would bother some people because they they really like the idea of Jesus just being in this this stable. But more than likely, he was probably born in, in this cave. And, uh, and when you picture the manger, it's commonly shown as, you know, this wooden uh, feeding box. That's possible, again, but actually less likely because it was probably what what was used at the time and what we have archaeological evidence for is that these these uh, there were stone quarries in abundance in this area. There wasn't a lot of timber. And you just think about the resources that people use in ancient times. They'd make use of the area. So they used stone 
to make these uh, stone mangers. They would carve them out. And that's probably more likely something like what Jesus was laid in. Uh, and, and not a wooden feeding box, but a, a stone manger. Uh, and then the other thing is, there's, there's good evidence for this going back to uh, not just Constantine, because Constantine built the Church of the Nativity um, over this cave that was thought to be the site of where Jesus was born again. Um, and in fact, he had his mother, Helena, oversee the Church of the Nativity. So that shows he it had a, a special place in his heart because he put his mom in charge of it. But the other reason is that the uh, pagan emperor who was there before uh, before Constantine, the emperor Hadrian, built a shrine to Adonis at this same location. And some people might think, okay, well, what, is, what does that have to do with this, having a pagan shrine at the same location? Well, it turns out that based on the records we have, these uh, pagan emperors like Hadrian tended to want to snuff out Christianity at its root, so to speak. And so as a way of maybe mocking it and maybe just wanting to uh, paper over any of the, you know, the uh, sacredness to the, these places that the Christians had come to, to honor, they would put a idolatrous shrine, you know, a, a pagan shrine right at those spots um, as a way of sticking it to the Christians, so to speak, and and showing that they were in the ones in control. They are the ones who had power. Now, the, the accidental byproduct of that is that they they ended up having the landmark be preserved as that's the location because, well, there's a pagan shrine there and we know what you did with that pagan shrine. We know why you built it. And so the Christians didn't forget. And that actually ended up being maybe an accidental preservation, uh, a way of preserving these locations because, uh, now, uh, when Constantine came along and, and, and now we still have these, he built these churches in those exact spots and tore down the shrines and said, we're going to make sure basically, uh, that Christ is honored and that these Christian locations are taken back from, uh, the pagan imprint that's been put there. So I just think that's kind of cool that we can, we can look at this history and recognize, there's a lot of good reasons to just read scripture and take it as it is and, and to believe it because it's supported time and time again. Um, something that I thought was really interesting was d- diving into this a little bit is the date of Christmas. So December 25th is of course our traditional date for Christmas. And many have, have taught and including myself, I'll have to admit this cause I was taught this. Many have taught others that, the date of December 25th basically was something like a, um, a takeover from the pagan celebration that occurred at the same time. And basically it was revamped with a new Christian, uh, meaning and Christian, uh, holiday. And so that, and this is typically thought of as Saturnalia, uh, the, the festival that was long, celebrated and it was a Roman festival to, uh, their God Saturn. Um, but what happened is when digging into this, I I found that actually Saturnalia was celebrated from December 17th to the 23rd. So that went around the time of the winter solstice, but not on December 25th. So people have to ask, okay, so why December 25th? It was, if it was really just a replacement, 
of this pagan festival and, and make it into a holy day for Christians, why December 25th? Why not do December 23rd or something like that that would actually match up with Saturnalia? And I think what, what's fascinating about this is when you, when you look at it, there are actually records of early Christians before even Constantine saying that December 25th was the day that our Lord was born. Um, and, you know, one of the pushbacks has been, well, okay, but shepherds were in the fields at this time. They're the ones who first came and visited Jesus while he was in the manger. And, and surely they wouldn't be out there during winter. And I think that's just an interesting thing to say, because when you look at shepherds throughout history, uh, they, they still have to do their job even in the wintertime. I mean, they're, it's not as though they take the winter off. And when you look at the average temperature for Bethlehem in December, even today, the average high is 57, the average low is 45. Uh, they only have roughly one or two days of snow in the month of December. So they, they actually, it's maybe not as harsh as some people might think. Um, and it was routine for shepherds to work in cold temperatures. Uh, when you look at places like the Eurasian Steppe, Mongolia, the Himalayan region, all those other areas, what you find is that shepherds, and even today, uh, shepherds uh, will be in cold temperatures. They'll be out there, and so, a lot of times they'll have a they'll have a permanent uh, structure that they live in where they stay warm, and they use that. But they still are going to be out with the sheep a good portion of the time, and so this is not far fetched to think of shepherds out in December even. Um, and I think that maybe we've been ruling out that possibility too quickly in some cases. Uh, the other thing is that the, so when they, when they've done research on the date of December 25th, they also found that when Mary, or excuse me, when, uh, Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, uh, when she first conceived John, and of course, John was in his sixth month of pregnancy when Mary conceived Jesus based on what we see in Luke 1. Luke chapter 1 talks about this. If so, if that's the case, then you'd think, okay, so why, you know, there's got to be something we can look at to line up the dates for Jesus's birth. And what you find is that uh, John's dad, Zechariah, was offering incense in the temple. This is what Luke 1 talks about. It's actually basically the first story in Luke 1. And based on what we see happening there, there's a good chance or a good good reason to think this was for the Day of Atonement. Why is that significant? Well, because the Day of Atonement fell on the, what, what we, we, well, we don't call it the, uh, uh, it's September for us, but it would have been um, on the tenth day in in the Jewish month of Tishri. So that's when he's told he's going to have a kid, and so if that's when John was conceived, which all indications is that's that is when he was conceived, then when John is in his sixth month of pregnancy, so Elizabeth is in her sixth month carrying John, that's when Mary conceives Jesus. That would land us at March roughly speaking. That's six months after September. And if you think about it, and this is some interesting thing too, is um, even Irenaeus, when he's writing in 
just the, the second century, he says that Jesus was conceived on March 25th. And so if you look at March 25th and then add nine months, where does that put you? December 25th. And so when we have guys like Irenaeus confirming this, and then you have uh, guys like uh, Africanus, who's another historian writing in the late second century, early third century, he also says that Jesus was conceived on the 25th of March. And then you have uh, others, including, um, we, we even have a Hippolytus who says that Jesus was born on December 25th. Africanus also says Jesus was born on December 25th. Irenaeus says that. Uh, Clement of Alexandria says, uh, we know that um, Jesus's birth was on the 25th of the Egyptian month of Pachon, which um, again, that would be the 25th of December. And so if you just look at what the the early church fathers commonly said, even Valentinius, another one, Gregory of uh, Nazianzus, all of these guys said December 25th is the day that Jesus was born. Now, I didn't know this for quite a while because I had been led to believe that that date was strictly taken from the pagan dating method and the, the holiday that was on on those on December 25th. But, but actually the evidence is not in that direction at all. It, it, it looks to me based on what I have read and researched on this, that they knew, and this was, again, it's, people could say this is a secondary thing, but I think it's significant because, um, it says that from the beginning, they recognized this is significant, that God is incarnate on this specific date. This is something we have to commemorate. This is something we have to celebrate, something we have to treat as a holy day. Now, it may not have been uh, celebrated, and it certainly wasn't from the early days, as a as a holiday or holy day. Uh, that's where we get the word holiday. Um, it, not treated in the same way as we do today, of course, with all the festivities, the lights, the gifts, the trees, all of that. Certainly not. But my only point is that they acknowledged and and saw this as a historical date for the birth of Jesus, December 25th. And so if you look at it and you you see December 25th, and if it was the year 6 BC, then we can say based on the best historical, archaeological, and literary records we have going back to that time, everything fits so that we can be confident in saying that not only do we trust the Bible, but we can be able to talk about this with others and say, look, we've, we've got a faith that is rooted in history. When we talk about December 25th as a day to celebrate our Lord's birth, it's not just a random happenstance. It's not even based on pagan dating methods. It's based on the reality that we know, or that's what some of these fathers at least said. They said, we know he was conceived on March 25th born on December 25th, not so much because those specific dates are all that matter, but because of the historicity and the, the, the authenticity of, of being able to say, these are the actual dates for these events to happen. When this momentous miracle of, of our Lord coming into this world, and that's what's significant. That's what we need to be able to share with others at Christmas time is not only do we just treat this as a fun, you know, holiday where it's just about having the spirit of giving, you know, certainly is about that too. But 
first and foremost, this is about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into this world at a specific date and time in history and how that changes history. From that point on, we live in a different world where the Messiah has come and there's hope. There's hope for this world. There's, there's, and the other thing is it reminds us that there's a specific date in mind when Jesus is coming back. That's what scripture says, that there is a fixed day on which he will return in righteousness. And I think that's encouraging to remember that. So so think of, just as you would think of his first advent as, as, as absolutely historical and, and happening in time, think of the second advent as a, as a future time where, with a fixed date that is certainly going to happen, uh, just as sure as his first coming. And this is the, the, the hope we have to share with others. This is the, um, and really it's the, the urgent message they need to hear that they need to be reconciled to this God who has entered our world. And the joy of fellowship with him is something we don't want anybody to miss out on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith Unpacked podcast. We're so thankful for your time. We hope and pray that these encourage your faith and walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to hear past episodes, you can find them on our website at faithunpacked.com. We'd also invite you to subscribe on your favorite podcasting site. If you have any questions, feel free to hit us up on social media, or you can send us an email at faithunpacked at gmail.com. And we invite you back next time as we continue to unpack our faith together.